0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, suicidal ideation, and starvation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: The August fifteenth, 1914 massacre at Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin estate dominated newspapers from Wisconsin to Illinois. People were fascinated by the perpetrator, a seemingly harmless handyman who snapped and went on a rampage unlike anything they'd ever seen.
0: Attention-grabbing headlines cropped up everywhere, leaving many people with a sensationalized view of the mass murder. Everyone knew Julian Carlton's name, but few knew who he really was.
1: Some journalists sought to provide more than salacious, surface-level details. They wanted to get to the meat of the story, to answer not just how the crime happened, but why.
0: One such reporter worked for a publication called The Tribune. In the hopes of learning more about how Julian's mind worked, he tracked down two of the handyman's former Chicago neighbors and knocked on their doors.
1: Although Julian purportedly felt watched and distrusted in Spring Green, these interviews revealed that people in Chicago weren't exactly fond of him either. His neighbors told the Tribune that he always seemed off.
0: According to them, Julian didn't just snap. There were clues leading up to the massacre. A through line of violence in the handyman's not-so-quiet life. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
1: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case.
0: You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free, exclusively on Spotify.
1: This is our final episode on the 1914 Taliesin Massacre. Last week, we discussed the largest single-killer mass murder in Wisconsin history. We dug into the various theories regarding Julian Carlton's motivation for the slaughter and arson. This week, we'll see how law enforcement inched closer to the truth and discover the perpetrator's painful fate.
0: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: During the second half of August 1914, Iowa County Sheriff John Williams feared that time to finish his investigation was running out. He had many more questions, but the perpetrator of the massacre, 30-year-old Julian Carlton, was losing weight rapidly.
0: Since swallowing a vial of muriatic acid, a less pure form of hydrochloric acid, Julian could barely eat or speak, Sheriff Williams worried the perpetrator would starve to death before he could get the answers he needed.
1: Unable to find any more information in Spring Green, the sheriff looked to Julian's hometown of Chicago. Luckily, Iowa County sheriffs got their hands on the Tribune article with interviews from two of Julian and Gertrude's former neighbors.
5: Let me see. This quote is from a Mrs. Maurice Dorsey, she said she worked with Julian at a catering business, apparently she lived on South Wabash. The quote. Right. Sorry, Sheriff. Uh, uh. Oh, okay. She says, he seemed to be nervous and quivering all the time. He'd fly off the handle at the slightest provocation.
4: Is there more? Yes.
5: Uh, She says he was very worried about money, always stressed that he wouldn't be able to make ends meet.
4: But money wasn't the provocation. Uh,
5: who knows what provoked him?
4: Fair point. And the other neighbor?
5: Uh, uh yeah, uh, Mrs. Harry Long. She was his co worker and his neighbor.
4: So maybe she knows him a bit better.
5: Right. She says, I didn't like him and was afraid of him. I thought he was off all along.
4: Easy to say that now.
5: There's more. Oh, huh. What? Did Gertrude ever mention Julian? hurting her? What do you mean?
0: Sheriff Williams snatched the paper and read Mrs. Long's statement. According to her, Julian had a history of domestic abuse. It wasn't unusual, she said, for him to fly into violent rages that left Gertrude fearing for her life. During times like these, Gertrude ran to Mrs. Long for help.
1: One might question Mrs. Long's statements based on the fact that Julian apparently had no criminal record prior to the massacre. However, domestic violence wasn't criminalized across the entire United States until 1920. And even then, it was treated as more of a private matter than a legal one.
0: This could also explain why Gertrude wasn't entirely clear about the alleged abuse when speaking to the Sheriff's Department. She told deputies that Julian could be mean and even frightening, but this was in the context of his paranoia at Taliesin, not in their relationship.
1: Even though she seemed to be censoring her statements, Gertrude still knew Julian better than anybody else. If the authorities hoped to understand him, they'd have to go through her.
0: Luckily, as the date of Julian's preliminary hearing neared, Gertrude opened up. She told Iowa County authorities.
1: My husband had the notion that he was being pursued. He recently got to waking me up in the night in our quarters at the bungalow to listen for noises. They're trying to get me, he kept saying. Gertrude couldn't fully explain where Julian's paranoia came from. He clearly felt alienated and even persecuted as the only man of color at Taliesin but no available evidence suggests his co-workers were actively threatening his job or his life.
0: In fact, the persecutory delusions Julian suffered from are a textbook symptom of some mental illnesses. Persistent feelings of paranoia can be indicative of acute psychosis or schizophrenia.
1: Although 19-year-old Herbert Fritz and 35-year-old Billy Weston, the only survivors of the attack, said that the massacre had to be a result of momentary insanity. It's much more likely that Julian was living with an undiagnosed and untreated mental illness. In
0: 1914, though, research into psychotic disorders was minimal. The idea that Julian might have been suffering from delusions or clinical paranoia was never explored. Instead, the 30-year-old handyman continued to be characterized as an animalistic madman his violence a result of unexplainable forces?
1: But in addition to mental illness, there was another possible cause. Julian still struggled to eat, but his throat had healed enough that he could croak out a few more words.
4: You do realize your hearing is coming up very soon. Mm-hmm. The question of motive will be at the forefront. There's lots of rumors, but I don't believe any of them. I want to hear the explanation straight from you. You had no monetary incentive, no moral high ground, no reason to commit such an atrocity. People say you're insane. (laughs) I don't find any of this particularly funny. He had it coming. Who's he, Frank? Brodel. Emil Brodel, the draftsman. What'd you have against him? Did you kill Emil because you were angry with him? guess you solved
0: it. 30-year-old Emil Brodel was one of the seven people killed in the massacre, and apparently Julian's primary target. Fritz and Weston, the two survivors of the attack, corroborated this. According to them, the handyman and the draftsman never got along.
1: This was mainly due to the fact that Brodel openly disrespected Julian. Reports from Fritz, Weston, and Gertrude allege that on August 13th, two days before the crime, Brodell told Julian to saddle his horse.
0: It's possible this was seen as an effort by Brodell to exercise power over his black co-worker, and Julian refused to take the bait. In response, Brodell spat a racial slur at the handyman.
1: According to Julian, that wasn't the end of it. The next day, Brodell allegedly struck the handyman, and the day after that, abused him for more than half an hour.
0: This proved to be just the provocation Julian needed.
4: I told Brodell I would get him, and I waited for my chance.
1: Julian admitted his primary goal was to kill Brodell. He also said that he only killed 45-year-old Mema Cheney, Frank Lloyd Wright's mistress, because he mistook her for somebody else. But this seems incredibly far-fetched. Mema was one of the few adult women on the property, and she was sitting on the porch with her son when she was murdered.
0: After those confessions, though, Julian had nothing left to say. He offered no reason for why he killed five other people or set Taliesin ablaze. The best explanation was that he didn't want to leave any evidence or survivors behind.
1: That clearly didn't work out. As Julian's hearing approached, there was a mountain of proof stacked against him.
0: On August 27th, Julian arrived before a justice looking thin and weak. Because the crime had attracted so much media attention, a huge crowd gathered to watch the murderous handyman be charged. According to a local paper, every seat in the gallery at the courtroom was filled.
1: Ten witnesses testified, including Herbert Fritz and Billy Weston. The survivors gave their account of what happened before the fire broke out. According to Weston, that morning Julian asked him for gasoline to clean a rug. Later, while he and the other Taliesin employees gathered for lunch, Julian poured that gasoline under the dining room door.
0: By the time the men noticed the liquid, it was already too late. It ignited in a flash of blue. There was no time to think about anything but escape. Fritz crashed through the window and tumbled down the hillside, lucky to be out of Julian's scope. The other men began to push their way through the broken glass, but Julian chased them down with his hatchet.
1: The story was chilling. And it was enough for Justice Thomas Arthur to charge Julian with 10 separate felonies. The handyman's trial was scheduled for October 1st, 1914. But a doctor at the Iowa County Jail worried Julian wouldn't live that long.
3: He's in very serious condition. He managed to sip some broth this
4: morning, and he's been chewing on orange peels.
3: With all due respect, Sheriff, a man can't live on broth and orange peels. What am I supposed to do?
1: I don't know. There was nothing doctors or law enforcement could do. September was just around the corner. And, for Julian, it would prove to be a month of unimaginable pain.
0: Up next, Julian weakens as his trial nears. Listeners, this month marks 60 years since John F. Kennedy became the 35th President of the United States, ushering his already prominent family into the highest enclaves of political power. But behind their storied successes lie secrets and scandals so severe, if it were any other lineage, they would have been left in ruin. This January... To commemorate this iconic milestone, dig into the dramas of a real life American dynasty in the Spotify original from Parcast, The Kennedys. This exclusive series from Spotify features your favorite Parcast hosts, including me, covering every angle of The Kennedys from shows like Today in True Crime, Conspiracy Theories, Crime Countdown, and others, assassinations and conspiracies, corruption and cover ups international affairs, and extramarital ones, too. Examine all of the Kennedy family's most controversial moments all in one place. You can binge all 12 episodes of this limited series starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Follow The Kennedys free and exclusively on Spotify.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
1: By the time 30-year-old Julian Carlton arrived at his hearing on August 27, 1914, authorities believed that they had an idea of the handyman's motive for murder. Apparently, Julian never got along with Emil Brodel, a Taliesin draftsman who witnesses said repeatedly aggressed the handyman.
0: Brodel was considered Julian's primary target, while the other six victims were killed in an attempt to ensure no witnesses survived. At his hearing, the judge charged Julian with 10 separate felonies and
1: scheduled his trial for October 1st. But Julian's health was dubious. His court date was over a month away, and his weight continued to drop. September passed, each day blurred by hunger pangs, waves of nausea, and a fatigue that became increasingly difficult to fight.
0: The handyman was in agony. But the pains of starvation couldn't rival the anguish 47-year-old Frank Lloyd Wright felt as he stood inside his charred and barren estate. The life had been extinguished from his home, and he fought to hold on to his own desire to live.
1: It was nearly impossible for Frank to pull himself out of the spiral of his grief. Even weeks later, it was difficult to believe his lover was dead. She had been the most brilliant woman he'd ever known. Maima was an academic, a feminist, a translator, a free thinker. She was an anomaly of her time, and the world suffered for having lost her.
0: But Frank couldn't allow himself to wallow forever. He would never be able to bring Maima back, so he had to find something he could do, some way to pull himself out of his mourning.
2: Frank? <clears throat>
4: What are you doing? New blueprints. I'm going to build it even better than before.
2: Are you sure you're ready for that?
4: Never been more ready for anything in my life. Grab me a new pencil, will you?
1: While Julian starved, Frank Lloyd Wright made plans to reconstruct the home the handyman had destroyed. According to Frank, working was the only way he could find relief from his grief.
0: It all happened remarkably quickly. Before the end of the year, the entire residential wing of Taliesin had been rebuilt. The act of putting his home back together was a physical manifestation of Frank's emotional healing. By the time he completed the project, he was ready to let Mema go for good. He'd even publicly proclaimed his love for another person, a woman he'd begun seeing after she wrote him a letter of condolence.
1: Of course, this brought controversy, but Frank's love life had never adhered to conventional standards. Indeed, Mema had been quite open-minded and permissive herself, so Frank may have felt that she would want him to move on.
0: In any case, Frank seemed to pull himself together before January 1915. The horrific massacre at Taliesin became, in the public consciousness, a mere blip in his career. But those who studied Frank's work more closely saw a major change in the structures he designed after the tragedy.
1: Architectural scholars have argued that, post-1914, Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings became more labyrinthine and fortress-like. One example of this is Frank's Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, which he began designing in 1915 and finished constructing in 1923.
0: The hotel resembles something like a fortified castle and was constructed primarily with brick, concrete, and volcanic rock. Frank built it to be impenetrable. When the Great Kanto Earthquake, a 7.9 magnitude disaster, hit the Tokyo area in September 1923, the Imperial Hotel was the only building left standing.
1: Whether this extreme durability was a conscious effort or not, it reflects the fear and desire for protection that must have permeated Frank's psyche after the crime. Even if it seemed like he moved forward, the loss haunted him forever. His thoughts, one
0: could imagine, always went back to the question of why. This was the same question that Judge George Clemenson hoped to answer when Julian went to trial. On the morning of October 1st, 1914, just before Julian was set to appear in court, Judge Clemenson requested a private meeting with the perpetrator.
3: <clears throat> you have a number of options, different pleas you can enter into. I'm not sure what argument or um, reasoning you intend to offer in court, There are a number of different pleas you can enter into, I just want to make sure you're aware of your options, because I don't know if anyone has made those clear to you. (sighs) Right, so you can plead guilty. You know what that means, right? I did it. Yes, but if you plead guilty, you may receive a lesser charge. You can also plead insanity, which means- I'm crazy. It's a little more complicated than that, but yes, essentially. In that case, if the jury believes your defense, you could get off with minimal charges. If not, you could end up in a worse situation than if you just pled guilty. What about not guilty? Uh, well, I wouldn't suggest doing that. Why not? There's far too much evidence against
1: you. Perhaps because starvation had diminished his mental awareness, Julian didn't heed the judge's warning. That afternoon... Julian was so malnourished that he had to be carried into the courtroom where he pleaded not guilty to all ten felony charges.
0: Though he expected the not guilty plea, it appeared that Judge Clemenson hadn't arranged for a jury to be present. This may have been based on his impression of Julian's physical state. The trial would need to be rescheduled for a later date, so guards carried the prisoner back to his jail cell.
1: But he wouldn't be there much longer. Around 1 p.m. on October 7th, six days after his initial trial date, and almost two months after the massacre, Julian finally died of starvation. The corpse hardly resembled the man frantic neighbors had searched for around Taliesin.
0: On August 15th, Julian, a man who stood about five feet, eight inches tall, weighed approximately 145 pounds. By the time he died, the handyman had shrunk to a meager 90 pounds. His skeleton seemed to be working its way out of his skin.
1: Available records suggest none of Julian's relatives were contacted about his death or asked to retrieve his body. Instead, a perfunctory obituary was published in a local paper. Then the handyman's corpse was packed into a crude wooden box, and shipped to the University of Wisconsin at Madison for scientific and educational use.
0: It's impossible to know how Frank Lloyd Wright reacted to the news, but one might imagine he found some peace in knowing Julian Carlton had orchestrated his own painful demise.
1: By 1915, 48-year-old Frank had successfully rebuilt Taliesin in its entirety. He called the structure Taliesin II, and he and his new lover moved in right away. They lived as an illegitimate couple, just as Frank and Mama had, until in 1922, when Frank's first wife finally granted him a divorce.
0: In the autumn of 1923, 56-year-old Frank got married for a second time, For a number of reasons, likely including Frank's own difficulties with monogamy and his wife's rumored struggles with mental health, the couple divorced after less than a year in spring 1924.
1: It seemed like Frank Lloyd Wright was a magnet for tragedy because things kept going downhill.
4: Everybody, out of the house, now! (sighs) Not again.
0: In April 1925, an electrical fire broke out at Taliesin II and destroyed the residential area of the home. Luckily, there were only two employees present and no one was hurt. Not one to be deterred, 58 year old Frank reconstructed the house once again, turning it into Taliesin III.
1: Although Frank Lloyd Wright is primarily famous for his prolific and unique architectural work, his personal life alone is fascinating enough to fill several storybooks. Indeed, the mystery surrounding the Taliesin Massacre lives on over a century later, with writers, researchers, and amateur detectives still searching for solid answers.
0: The only person who knows exactly what happened died in prison over a hundred years ago, But by compiling and cross-referencing numerous accounts, many believe this is the most accurate picture possible of that terrifying August afternoon.
1: Coming up, we reconstruct the deadliest single-killer massacre in Wisconsin history. Back to our story.
0: Little is known about Julian's life before he moved from Chicago to Spring Green in early 1914. However, it's clear that it didn't take long for him to regret taking the job at 47-year-old Frank Lloyd Wright's estate. Julian and his wife, Gertrude, were the only people of color on the property, which left Julian feeling alienated and uncomfortable.
1: Although Frank and his mistress, 45-year-old Mema, were thrilled with the Carlton's work, other Taliesin employees weren't as happy to have Julian and Gertrude around. Little is known about specific events, but the Carltons faced both explicit and implicit discrimination from at least some of their co-workers.
0: Julian needed a way out. It's possible that he'd been struggling with mental illness for some time— but the unfamiliar environment exacerbated his symptoms and made him feel even more paranoid than before. All he wanted was to go back to Chicago.
1: But perhaps Julian didn't want to look weak. It would be emasculating to admit to homesickness, so he made Gertrude do it instead. Miss Mema? Mm Mm-hmm? I uh, want to thank you and Frank so much for the work.
4: No thanks necessary. You've been a great help around the house.
1: But I think we might have to cut our contract short. Why? Have you ever had to be far away from all your friends and family? Yes. It's awful. I'm just too homesick here, miss. I
4: understand.
5: But could you stay until Frank and I can find replacements? Let's say, mid-August at the latest?
0: Mama spoke to Frank It's likely that the couple spent some time trying to find servants locally or through friends. When this didn't work, they wrote an advertisement to be published in the Wisconsin State Journal on August 12th and 13th, 1914.
1: But Julian was probably formulating his massacre before the ad was ever printed. On Friday, August 7th, he visited a pharmacy in Spring Green. By that point, he knew he would be committing a heinous crime— so he bought muriatic acid as a way to commit suicide if he got caught.
0: It also seems likely that Gertrude was completely unaware of his plan. Evidence suggests Julian acted alone, holding back until the perfect moment. Perhaps that's why he waited until Frank Lloyd Wright was gone.
1: On Tuesday, August 11th, the day before the first job posting was scheduled to be listed, Frank left Taliesin to work on a project in Chicago.
0: Before he left, Frank kissed his lover goodbye. It would be the last time he saw her alive.
1: At first, things carried on as usual in Frank's absence. Mema's children, 11-year-old John and 9-year-old Martha, were visiting for the summer. They played in Taliesin's many winding corridors, while Mema worked on translating a work by an early Swedish feminist.
0: Meanwhile, a group of eight employees, Julian and Gertrude included, worked to keep Mema and her children fed and ensure that Taliesin was the sparkling, clean country estate Frank always dreamed of.
1: But things weren't as idyllic among Taliesin's workers. During the previous weeks, Julian grew more and more paranoid that his co-workers were out to get him. He kept Gertrude up at night, listening for noises. According to numerous reports, the tipping point came around Thursday, August 13th.
0: That day, 30-year-old draftsman Emil Brodel told Julian to put a saddle on his horse. Julian ignored the request. Then Brodel shouted a racial slur.
1: Although it's clear that Julian had been formulating his crime, many believe this incident was the straw that broke the camel's back. Julian may have wanted to kill Brodel specifically, but it's also possible that he saw everyone at Taliesin as an enemy.
0: Either way, Julian was experiencing intense paranoia and persecutory delusions. Over a period of at least a few weeks, his grip on reality had seemingly weakened.
1: On Saturday, August 15th, Julian likely woke knowing exactly what he was going to do. Before lunch, he spoke to carpenter Billy Weston.
2: Excuse me, Bill? Yep. Where can I get some gasoline? There's a stain on one of Miss Mama's rugs that just won't budge.
3: There's some containers in the garage.
0: Using gasoline as a fabric and upholstery cleaner was somewhat common in the early 20th century, so when Julian asked where to find it, it didn't seem suspicious. Once he got a container of the accelerant, he just had to grab his own lighter and hatchet.
1: Then everything was in order, and Julian was ready to strike.
0: That day, he helped prepare lunch for the entire household. When his wife came in to see that everything was taken care of... Perhaps he told her to leave the property. She was confused, but the look in Julian's eyes scared her. There was something evil in his countenance. It was an expression she'd seen before, a look of barely contained rage that preceded an outburst of violence.
1: Gertrude left Taliesin without asking any questions. With his wife safely out of the way, Julian served lunch to Maima and her children who were sitting on the home's large covered porch.
0: Perhaps he continued acting normally as he then walked down the hallway to the other side of the mansion where his six co-workers were seated, waiting to be served. He methodically filled their bowls.
1: It's impossible to know the exact order of events after Julian brought lunch to his fellow employees. However, one plausible sequence is as follows.
0: Julian walked back down the long hallway towards the porch. He ran at Mema and her children with a hatchet held high over his head. Maima and her son, 11-year-old John, likely died first from head trauma.
1: The location of 9-year-old Martha's body suggests that she ran from Julian. He chased her through the yard, but her tiny legs couldn't carry her fast enough to escape him. He brought the hatchet down on her head, leaving her to die on the lawn.
0: From where they sat inside the house, the Taliesin employees didn't hear the family's screams. They ate their lunch, blissfully unaware of the carnage outside the home.
1: But evil was coming to visit them as well. The men heard a swishing sound, then saw what looked like soapy water flowing under the door and into the dining room.
3: I guess Julian's out there mopping.
4: Wish you could manage to keep the water outside the house. Somebody's gonna have to clean that up.
3: It smells like-
0: But it wasn't mop water. Julian had poured gasoline through the crack beneath the dining room door. Just as the men recognized the scent, the entire floor lit up in bright blue flames.
1: The fire was ravenous, crawling its way up the walls and chairs, igniting the men's clothes. Fritz jumped out of his seat and desperately searched for an exit, but the door was blocked by the blaze. The window was the only way out.
0: Fritz didn't think. He just jumped, throwing himself into the glass with all the force he could muster.
1: Fritz fell hard onto the ground outside. His arm snapped beneath him, and he rolled down the hillside unable to control his momentum. He escaped the flames but as he bumped and spun downwards he thought the fall might kill him
0: luckily the earth leveled out and Fritz came to a stop he could hardly breathe there was so much adrenaline coursing through his body that he didn't feel the pain in his broken arm the bruises forming on his shoulders or the burns on his legs
1: he got his bearings and stood up from where he stood Halfway down the hillside, he could see tall flames swallowing Taliesin. He lumbered back up the incline as quickly as he could. The fire, he thought, must have been a terrible accident. A gasoline spill, a still-lit match irresponsibly tossed aside.
0: But as he approached Taliesin, Fritz realized the blaze was no mishap. Some of the other men, it seemed, had managed to escape the burning room but most of them were lying motionless on the lawn. One man, perhaps 30-year-old Emil Brodel, was sprinting away from the estate, trailed closely by Julian and his bloody hatchet.
1: The scene was utter pandemonium and likely not at all what Julian had imagined. His co-workers were supposed to die in the fire. Now there were bodies everywhere, evidence strewn about the yard.
0: Julian was too crazed to notice Fritz's absence. The 19 year old watched as the handyman slammed the weapon into Brodell's head, knocking him down. Julian surveyed the area. Every person on the lawn was still.
1: Julian sprinted back to the porch where Mema and John's bodies lay. He doused the area in gasoline and ignited another inferno. Finally, he ran to the furnace to hide. Emil? Oh, God. Ernest?
4: Is anybody... Bill? Uh, 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 You're alive. Where'd he go? I don't know, but we have to get help. Can you walk? I think so. Uh, 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 Jesus, David. You're alive. He's alive. God, we've got to get to a phone.
0: (sighs) Although David Lindblom would later die of burn injuries, he lived long enough to accompany Herbert Fritz and Billy Weston on the half-mile walk to their closest neighbor's house. There, the survivors called the authorities.
1: Soon, a search party made up of concerned locals congregated to look for Julian. They scoured the hillside for a man who didn't look like them. Eventually, locating the murderer inside Taliesin's furnace. As soon as Julian knew he was going to be arrested, he swallowed the muriatic acid that would kill him seven weeks later.
0: At the time, most Spring Green locals could only understand Julian through the lens of their religion. He could have been God's agent or Satan's minion, but he certainly wasn't a person. It was impossible to reconcile his evil with his humanity.
1: Today, it's easier to see the factors that led up to the Taliesin massacre. The handyman exhibited signs of mental illness, but his paranoia and delusions went untreated. This, combined with the racism he encountered in Wisconsin, could have been enough to push him over the edge.
0: Julian ended seven lives and crushed countless others. Frank Lloyd Wright was certainly the most famous person impacted, and the crime changed the way he designed buildings forever. His structures came to resemble fortresses and labyrinths, places his subconscious mind went to hide from the trauma of August 1914.
1: Many scholars argue that, due to Frank's lasting architectural influence, the crime could have had a ripple effect, Hundreds, if not thousands, of buildings have been inspired by Frank's work. Thus, Julian's hatchet potentially altered American architecture as a whole.
0: Equally important are the lives Julian cut short. Three men were stolen from their families. Three children lost their futures. And Chini, a truly prolific writer, translator, and feminist, never got to make her mark on the world.
1: There was only so much Frank could do to counteract all this tragedy. He rebuilt his beloved home twice over the following years, determined to make sure the symbol of love and loss lived on. Today, Taliesin
0: 3 is open to tourists passing through Spring Green, Wisconsin, and attracts thousands of morbidly curious visitors each year.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode.
0: For more information on Mamacini, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Julian Carlton, among the many sources we used, we found Death in a Prairie House, Frank Lloyd Wright and the Taliesin Murders by William R. Drennan, extremely helpful to our research.
1: You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
0: We'll see you next time
1: if we live till next time.
0: Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseff. Fact checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Tiana Camacho, Ellie Schiff, and Laura Faye Smith. Solve Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Fact, fiction, fame. Discover the real story behind one of history's most formidable families in the Spotify original from ParCast, The Kennedys. Remember, you can binge all 12 episodes starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify.